Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Reverend Ray Dial is a retired educator, and he's current pastor at Bethel AME Church in Iowa City. He has touched the lives of thousands of Iowans, but he may be best known as the man who taught Pulitzer Prize winner Nicole Hannah-Jones the significance of the date 1619 and urged her to give journalism a try. He taught at Waterloo West High School back in those days. He has lived black history, taught black history, and continues to inspire Iowans to strive, think, and ask hard questions. Reverend Ray Dial, welcome back to Talk of Iowa. Well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me and having me back. So I want to talk about you. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Los Angeles, but I was born in Magazine, Alabama, a suburb of Mobile, and it just so happens that that bay is where the last slave ship entered the United States, and its descendants live in that area still. I'm not one of those descendants, but I like to make that. At least I stood on the soil where they stood. Yeah. And my family moved to Los Angeles when I was before kindergarten. So from my K-12 experience was Los Angeles, California. All right. And then just to put our world in context, your great-grandfather was born into slavery? Mm -hmm. Yes, he was. He um, is... People refer to him as um, Uncle Joe Harrison, and he was born into enslavement. And so I always tell people that my mother, when she would hold her grandfather's hand, she was holding the hand of somebody who had been enslaved, and he built a little church there in Pachuta, Mississippi, which is like 20 minutes south of Meridian. The church is still there, and he built the first school for black children there next to the church. And the school is physically not there, but now it's like uh, they have a mobile home that's a little community center. Wow. So I I love that because it, it does help us put into perspective how recent the history of slavery in this country is. My mother passed in 2015, but before that, when you know, think about if I held my mother's hand, I'm holding the hand who held the hand of somebody who had been enslaved in this country and could speak to his experiences. And it was, and even her experiences growing up in Mississippi, where they finished a little grade school, she had to go, they had to go to Meridian and live in a boarding house to finish high school. And then my other aunt who was there with her, and my uncle. My uncle became a school principal, and my aunt was one of uh, his teachers um, before they set the school on fire that he was the principal of because he was helping black students leave Mississippi and go to other places to go to college, and that didn't sit well with the white community. And So so members of the community lit, lit yeah, the they set school it on, on fire, fire and burned and it to the ground. It was, whoo. And that's kind of how we ended up in Los Angeles with him looking for other work and ended up in San Jose and my aunt coming. Everybody's trying to leave Mississippi and go to California. Right. To live in a, a place that felt safer. 
and more equal. Yeah. Although <laughs> we, we know equality is a sliding scale. Um, so you grew up mostly then in Los Angeles. How did you get to Iowa? We had, and I went to the high school, I was in Manuel Arts High School, um, probably about eight blocks from the University of Southern California, which is like right across the street from the L.A. Coliseum. We had a um, recruiter come from Central College. And like most high school seniors, if you sign up, you get to get out of class to go hear the recruiter. So I signed up for every recruiter. <laughs> and that's just, that's just smart. That's great. It painted a good picture of the school. And I'm like, hmm. That can be fun. Had no idea where Iowa was. Thankfully, um, a friend of mine from college, her aunt worked with my mother. And she said, yeah, I know where Pella is. My niece is there. And my mother said, okay, you can go. But you know, we're talking about 1973 and so no cell phones, none of those kinds of things. And So, so far from home. Yeah, long, I took the Greyhound bus. Left on Tuesday at 1, got there Thursday at 1. Because <laughs> we tried, so, oh, okay, well, you can fly. And couldn't get an airline ticket from L.A. to Pella. Didn't know about Des Moines. Barely knew about Iowa. Right. And then tried the train. You couldn't get on the train and go to Pella. And then finally my mother said, if the bus don't go, you can't go. <laughs> <laughs> So I took the Greyhound bus, and it was like 60, I think with tax, it was like $61. Wow. So you came to run on the cross-country team? I actually was there on a um, forensic scholarship. I was on the debate team. I ran cross-country in high school and loved it and got to college. And I, ah, I don't know if I want to work that hard. And I ended up running cross-country because I saw some guys in the bookstore, and they were runners. And I said, ah, can I come work out with you guys just for fun? And they said, sure. And next thing you know, I was on the team <laughs> and <laughs> ran for four years. And it helped me survive Iowa because you had this camaraderie group and you're outside getting used, well, as used to the weather as you can get. Yeah. Uh, otherwise. I'm sure the winter was a shock. Oh. But speaking of shock, I mean, it must have been culture shock, too, to come from Los Angeles to Pella. How many black students were at Central College when you were there, do you think? Well, I'll start in reverse. <laughs> in high school, my K-12 experience, I had zero white classmates. I went to L.A. Unified Schools and you know, traditional schools, large schools. So when I got to college, it was the first time I ever had any um, white peers. And there were probably 40 five black students at Central at the time of the 1300. And I I was president of the Black Student Union for a while. I was the treasurer because I figured out that being the treasurer had more power than being the president of the Black Student Union. But didn't know, had had, had no white colleagues. My K-12 experience so it was unique for me and, and, and for them just getting used to Hmm, this is this is different. Now, fortunately, you get a chance to ask questions of one another in the dorm that normally you wouldn't get to ask. But it was because it's such different. an intimate setting. Yeah, being thrown together, living yeah. together. Yeah. And my first roommate, um, Dean Elman, he was from New Jersey, and he would always ask me, 
why did you go east to go to school? So why did you go? He's, and I'm like, go east? I went to the Midwest, and I would always ask him. And he said, well, I wanted to go west, but why'd you stop here? <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed my college experience and was kind of out there having a good time. And I'm pretty sure that I got at least one credit so I wouldn't have to come back again. <laughs> but I, I had a good time, and, and kind of Dean would help me understand some of the stuff about the weather because first snowed, I didn't go to class. And he said, oh, you didn't go to class? It's snowing. He says, you didn't even go to the dining hall. I said, yeah, but I'm going to wait till this stops. <laughs> You're going to starve to death because it's not going to stop for a long time. Oh, no. So you have a, a history of teachers in your family. What drew you to education? It actually was kind of a political thing. I'm running cross country at Central, and the cross country coach, uh, Bill Herzog, was also an education professor. And they were trying to recruit more black students into the Student Iowa State Education Association. So I'm home on Christmas break, and he calls me and says, how'd you like to go to New Orleans for a week for free? Sure. And that was where they were having the Student National Education Association National Conference. And so I agreed, went there, and enjoyed the conference, and actually got elected at that meeting to the um, Student National Board of Education. So I served on that as a, a member on the National Board from my first meeting, and that's kind of what got me into education. So I made those connections and graduated with a degree in political science, but um, also certified to teach government, United States history, um, world cultures, economics, and a couple other things. Wow. Well, I mean, you clearly became truly passionate about education. When do you think that happened? It was really the the first year that I was teaching because I started off in Waterloo at Expo Alternative School. And now when you hear alternative schools, people think about schools for students who have discipline issues. But in Waterloo, it wasn't a disciplinary school. It was a school for students who really wanted to go to school but had so many social issues pulling on them. They may have had children. Um, they may have had to work to help their family. And for many of them, they had an issue. They, they smoked. And you know, in the 1970s, a lot of people smoked. And in school, you could smoke across the street but if you were smoking on campus, you got in trouble. Well, at Expo, they allowed students to smoke so that they could finish their education. And working with those students who didn't fit but wanted an education, like I kind of like helping people make it who everybody else kind of given up on. And they weren't, they weren't dropouts. They were kind of pushed out and pulled out. So it was your job to engage these kids and help them graduate. And we found a way, and they, you know, they remember those kinds of things because you, I mean, we had to do home visits as a classroom teacher, and that's when I found out that there were even poor white people. Because I grew up thinking, okay, everybody white got money because everybody on TV that's white, they have money, and to do home visits and find out some of these students, they have a rough life. You know, one of the reasons they're working is um, so that they can help their family 
while they try to finish school. And that kind of helped me see some things differently also. It helped me have a greater appreciation for other people, too. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I am talking with Reverend Ray Dial. We are talking about his life and career. He may be best known as Pulitzer Prize winner Nicole Hannah-Jones's teacher. He's the one who handed her a book that she read and learned the significance of the date 1619. He also encouraged her to give journalism a try and facilitated that as well. We'll talk about that in a little while. He is the current pastor at Bethel AME Church in Iowa City. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. With me today is Reverend Ray Dial. He is a retired educator, and he's the current pastor at Bethel AME Church in Iowa City. He grew up mostly in Los Angeles, came to Iowa for college, went to Pella Central College, and really never left. He is a retired educator. As I mentioned, he taught for many years in Waterloo, Iowa. He was a school principal, and then he was called to the ministry, and he has done that work for many years as well. And so we were just talking about your early time teaching in Waterloo. When you looked for a job as a teacher right out of Central College, you only applied in three different districts, right? Tell me about that. I applied to Waterloo, There were some black students at Central College, and so I knew it was black people in Waterloo, black people in Des Moines, and black people in Davenport. And I wanted to be in a a community with a large black population, and so that's where I sent out resumes. And uh, Don Hanson, who was the associate superintendent of schools in Waterloo at the time, and he hired me. He took that chance, and it was so strange. Don is a moderately conservative Republican, and I've never been considered moderately conservative, and I've never been a Republican, but he and I got along because it was, um, he wanted that kind of energy. You know, he obviously saw my resume, my work with teacher unions, and this was during the time when collective bargaining was really getting strong in Iowa, and he even told me, said, when he hired me, he said, there probably will be a day when we'll be sitting across the table from one another negotiating. And I spent three or four years on the negotiating team for, uh, then it would have been the WA Waterloo Education Association, and he was on the other side of the table, and we made it work. So you taught at Expo, the alternative school. Then you taught at East? Yeah, I went to East High. I was there for five years, and that was... The principal when I was there was Dr. Walter Cunningham, and there was an elementary school in Waterloo named after Walter Cunningham. And then from East, I got into school administration at Central Middle School. I spent three years at Central as an assistant, and then I went over to uh, West High after that. So, I mean, what drew you to Waterloo as a black man and a black teacher was you wanted to live in a diverse community with a black population. 
Tell me about the population on the teaching staff. Were there other black teachers? There were other, you know, it's interesting, Waterloo has a higher percentage of black teachers than other school districts. You know, obviously Des Moines has, always has the highest number, but Waterloo had a higher percentage of black teachers, higher percentage of uh, black people, and had the first black radio station, so it was kind of a good fit for me. I never taught in the building where there wasn't another black teacher, but there was... It was rare. It wasn't until I actually got into administration I ever worked with a peer that looked like me. When I was in um, social studies department at West, only black social studies teacher at East, only black social studies teacher. No, we had other, I think there were two teachers in English, one in special ed, and they used to call us the, um, I think we would call Their nickname, they didn't know that we knew, was the Black Federation because we met every morning in one of the teachers' rooms, and we kind of sat there and chatted to get our day started, and then we'd gather in that room at the end of the day and walk out of the building together. And so, like, when I'm saying gather, it's not like it was 30 people. It was five of us, and we tended to eat lunch together, too. So that that, helped. Was that support, that connection, really important to you and to the others? Yeah, because it was kind of— the only time during the day when you could really just relax and not, and when you're in education, you're, you're trying to be supportive of every student and help everywhere you can. But when you're a black educator, add on to all of that, those things that you must do to encourage black students. And if you ever had a chance to visit with a, a group of black teachers anywhere in Iowa, everyone, if you said, has it, any a white teacher ever come up to you and said, do you know thus and such student? And you automatically know whoever they're asking you about is going to be a black student, and then they're going to ask you if you could help them kind of reach them. And we never go to anybody else and say, do you know such and such because they're white? But if you're a black teacher, you're asked to do more than just go in that classroom and teach you or are asked to, it's not like a Little Rock Nine experience, but you're asked to do more than everybody else. And if you do it, it helps the school. If you don't, it doesn't hurt the school, but it doesn't help. Right. Well, we do know because research has shown how profoundly powerful it can be for a student to have a teacher that reflects their identity. For a black student to have a black teacher is a really powerful thing. So in spite of being asked to do things that white teachers weren't being asked to do, you must have felt that power. Oh, yeah. 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 I would talk about it in not only the black studies class, I was at at East and West. I would let the students know, I understand that if something goes wrong, the newspaper doesn't say, Ray Dial did thus and such. It will read, black teacher does thus and such. And my replacement won't look like me. So there is some responsibility where I have to do certain things. And you really get, and you have an impact not just on black students, but many white students. Because I had black students start signing up for macroeconomics because I was an econ teacher. And I had white students in econ start signing up for black studies because we made those relationships and they felt comfortable 
Because if you're white and black studies class, 25 students, 23 are going to be black. And so it was a different environment for them. And I would even remind the class, when you hear in black studies, when you hear the teachers say, we, if you're white, you now have to translate to they. If the class is all white and the teacher is white and the teacher says we, the black students in class are translating to they, and the students say, we never thought about it. Yeah, that's why I mentioned it, because you never thought about it, but those are little things, and it helped everybody in the class to relax and say, okay, so he does see this, he does hear this, I'm not the only one in here wondering about those things. So that part was always fun. I'm talking to Reverend Ray Dial. He is the pastor at Bethel AME Church in Iowa City and a retired educator. He's been in Iowa for, oh, almost 50 years, 45 years? Less than 100. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. So I want to ask you, because you taught black studies, and and again, I mentioned your famous relationship with your student, Nicole Hannah-Jones, as her teacher, a teacher that really inspired her and opened her eyes in a lot of ways. Just because you're black doesn't mean that you were taught a U.S. history that included you. (laughs) And so where did your black history education, your more comprehensive U.S. history education come from? Actually, the first formal black history class that was in junior high. I went to a teacher named Mr. Brooks. And at this time, most teachers, we're talking 1969 when I was in Mr. Brooks' class, Teachers still had the white shirt and tie kind of thing, even the black teachers. Mr. Brooks was the black teacher who wore the daishiki, and so his class was different. Now, at Bethune, there were lots of black teachers and administrators. As a matter of fact, my K-12 experience, I was never in a building where there weren't black teachers and administrators, and even being in those settings, it was a part of learning the history and culture. Teachers would tell you things and set expectations for you. I had a English teacher named Miss Gordon, and she would just talk about these books, Native Son, uh, things by Richard Wright. So I'm taking American Lit, and we're reading all these black authors. I get to college, and I said, I've had American Lit, so I'll take it again, and it'll be easy. I bet you didn't read <laughs> any of the same books, did you? My hand goes up. Who are these people? Where did you get these books? I signed up for American Lit. And he's looking at me like, what are you talking about? I had never read The Great Gatsby. I want to talk about teaching black studies in the Waterloo School District. Um you know, I, you had the same textbooks as the other teachers in other districts, but you must have had to really augment this curriculum to bring in your own sources to make sure that your students were getting, again, this more comprehensive, more true version of American history and, and seeing black people in the history of this country. How, how did you build that curriculum? A lot of it, even when I was teaching, quote, traditional U.S. history, I always made it a point to ask students to try to think of things from another perspective also. If you're, uh, now we used the term First Nation, you're a First Nation person, how did you see, did you consider it settlement? 
because um, do you think your lifestyle was unsettled? So I was always putting those things out there for people to read and think about and talk about. And in black studies, when I first started, all we had were little supplements. And I would tell women, so I'm supposed to throw this little insert in once or twice a year and talk about a few people. How about um, I'm going to pull it in all the time. I call it an infusion model and um, where you're always talking about it uh, in every subject. If, I tell people you're teaching um you shouldn't teach science without mentioning the role of women in science. So you shouldn't have to have a separate class to hear anything, but a separate class should be like a specialty area, like U.S. government is a specialty area of United States history. So I approached it that way. So I bought in articles, Jet Magazine, Ebony Magazine, and when I got to West High, I even um, ordered some new textbooks. And <laughs> we weren't on a textbook cycle. Well, we were, but every 10 years you get new books, especially in history. And what we had, there weren't high school textbooks for black studies um, in 1991 that people were using. And I wanted to use Introduction by black, uh, to Black Studies by Malawana Karinga, who is the person that's credited with bringing Kwanzaa to the United States um, and he had just written his second edition. First edition was 1981, second edition 1991. And I knew of him and his work because he actually had a publishing house and he taught classes in Los Angeles on 54th, about six blocks from where my sister lived, so not far from where I grew up. And so I got on the phone and ordered the books and I didn't have a budget for books. <laughs> was not an approved purchase. <laughs> no, but I knew that every department and every subject you know, had an account, and it had eight numbers, and so I just made up eight numbers, put them in there, and sent it downtown. And to this day, I don't know if they figured— Who got charged yeah, for those books? They may have said, hey, we, it has to be right because nobody would order textbooks with no money <laughs> or— it could have happened that the principal at that time, Barb, she may have caught it and paid for it herself. Barb was one of those kind of people who would help like that, but she never told me she did that, and she told me a lot of stuff, but she never <laughs> told me that. So somebody, I'm guessing somebody in accounting said, look, these digits got switched around. I'll put them in the right place, nice. and nice. I got the books and gave away a lot of, I think I ordered 44 books. And you rarely had more than 25 students in a class. And when students would ask about, can I keep this for a while? If you're going to read it, you can have it. And it, a lot of students read it. Nicole was one. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you must have touched so many students, students of all backgrounds, of all races. Um, but let's talk about Nicole Hannah-Jones, because she is your most famous student, at least to my knowledge, Pulitzer Prize winner, author of the 1619 Project. And she credits you with putting a book in her hands that taught her about that date, 1619. Yeah, I gave her a copy of Before the Mayflower. She was a voracious reader. And um, her good friend was also in the class, Sharita Stokes. And they even did their final project together. And I think about Four years ago, I was going through some paperwork, and you know, teachers save everything. Uh, we probably could be called doctors. We save lives. <laughs> and I found uh, that their project, 
and I mailed it to her. She said, you still have that? Wow. Yeah, but not anymore because I'm sending it to you because I'm trying to clean up some of this paperwork. And I tease her all the time. Said, you're a Pulitzer Prize winner. You know all the words in the dictionary. Why couldn't you describe me as being slim or athletic built? Why did it have to be skinny? <laughs> 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 Out of all of the words, and she just <laughs> chuckled. But it was... Um, you know, it was fun teaching the students and encouraging them to take some chances. But she had complained about there not being any stories about black students in the school newspaper. And so I just told her, why don't you quit complaining about it and get on the newspaper and you write the stories. And But she hadn't had all the prerequisites for the journalism class. So I went to the principal, talked the principal into it, Barb Corson, and Barb said, Okay, Ray, I'll go see what I could do. And I know at some point Barb had to say to the, that teacher, I know all of the things you're going to tell me why she can't be in here. I'm the principal. She's now in your class. And when she came back and told me, I said, Barb, she can't be like the Little Rock Nine being in a class by yourself and nobody else wants you in there. She needs to be in the habit at least. And she said, okay, after she has a friend whose skills are comparable where they can do the work, and it was uh, Sharita. And these two women are still working together and still making a difference and carrying on your legacy because Sharita Stokes is an educator in Waterloo and the director of the 1619 Freedom School in Waterloo. So they're... uh, this legacy is very much alive and well in Waterloo and in Iowa today. Now, if I'm in Waterloo and you mention you know, my, my famous former students, people would correct you and tell you that um, Quentin Hart, who's the mayor, yes. he was in my Black Studies class. It was, they were an interesting group to work with and encourage, and you never know what students are going to do and, and the challenges they're going to face and obstacles they overcome. Whenever I'm there and see the, that group of young people together, it's like it's just something where they, they back one another, they encourage one another, they find ways to make things happen. They're opening grocery stores, schools, clothing stores, um, supplementing the city council. They're doing so many things, and but I always tell students and parents the same thing. If they do some things right, I try to give parents the credit. And if they do some things wrong, I, I don't want the blame. So they, they're they doing some, some it's, it's fun. I got to get back up to Waterloo in the spring just to see and watch. And I, always, I just get a kick out of watching them do their thing. Yeah. We're going to take another short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Reverend Ray Dial. We are talking about his many years as an educator in Waterloo, Iowa right now. He is current pastor at Bethel AME Church in Iowa City, and we will continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. With me today is Reverend Ray Dial. He is a retired educator and current pastor at Bethel AME Church in Iowa City. He may be best known as... Nicole Hannah-Jones, Pulitzer Prize winner's teacher. Uh, at least that's what we've heard the most about him nationally. He 
put a book in her hands that taught her the significance of the date, 1619. He also urged her to give journalism a try. And just before the break, we were talking about this group of students that, that you had that so many of them have gone on to do really great things and to invest in the community of Waterloo and really make a difference in the community as well. Before we move on, though, I want to ask about the newspaper that Nicole Hannah-Jones and Sharita Stokes started together because you encouraged them to get on the school paper at West High, but then they started their own underground paper. Tell me about that. The paper they started was called CMB, Color Me Black, and it was actually about seven students who had put together this underground newspaper, and they were passing it out in the hallway one morning, and the principal and I were standing there, and we could see the students passing out the paper, and Barb leaned over and said, Ray, would you tell them, please don't pass it out in front of me, because right. this stuff has to be approved. So I said, I'll talk to them, Barb. Because <laughs> she didn't want to come down no. on these students that, that were doing something great. It was so funny, because I said, Barb, not only is it an underground newspaper, they printed in the business office after school. <laughs> and she said, well, I'm glad I have some students with gumption. She had my back on a lot of issues where I was able to help some students get some things done, and it was because she had my back. I want to bring Barbara Corson into the conversation. She was the principal at West High when you were teaching at West High, and Barb also spent many years, 33 years, teaching at West High, first as an English teacher and then later as an administrator, and the first woman in administration at West High. Barb, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It is wonderful to have you here. And Ray loves to tell stories about you. We already <laughs> we revisited the story about the underground school newspaper. But tell me, tell me a little bit about what it was like to have Ray Dial working for you. Well, you know, for, in the first place, I always enjoyed him. We, we always seemed to have fun and we were able to kind of laugh a lot. But the administrator's job, among many other jobs, is to have an orderly environment. And in my opinion, the underground newspaper was not disrupting the environment. And I think the people doing it had a great need to have it. So I was kind of like, don't tell me too much about this because I don't want to be put in the position to have to do something. Well, and, and Ray, you give Barb a great deal of credit. You don't feel like you would have been able to do the work that you did for another principal? No, because Barb gave me enough latitude to push the boundaries to help the students. And there would be times when I may be doing something that's kind of on the edge that a principal would say, I don't want that <laughs> done. And she said, well, let's go with it and see how it works out. And I've always wondered, like, how many bare aspirins she had to take because I was <laughs> teaching there. But she always made me feel like it was safe and comfortable and it was working. But once I became a principal, I thought about, well, I know I had to give her a lot of headaches. But <laughs> we couldn't have gotten it done. I couldn't have helped the way I helped if she hadn't had my back. Well, and, and Barb, I mean, you must have felt the importance of the work that Ray was doing at West High. Or, oh, yeah. Or you wouldn't have been so supportive. Right. We. We usually ran between 1,600 and 1,800 students, and I think we were running somewhere around maybe 1,600 at that time. 
And we were running, I think, about 20% black minority. But we had very, very few black minority teachers, Ray being, I think, maybe the only one at that time. And that's just not good, you know. These students need models to model on. And I, I admi- have always admired race. He was an asset to the community in addition to being an asset to West High. He was the assistant pastor at Payne United Methodist Church. And the few occasions I went there to hear him speak, you know, he was very highly thought of in that community, very much so. The complaints would go to her and not to me, and she <laughs> handled it. And I, said, I knew I couldn't have gotten by if, if she hadn't been there and fending off some folk. It was, um, it was interesting, fun, and energetic. But she would always tell me, this had to be a good day because I've had black parents screaming at me saying my— children untreated fair, and white parents screaming at me saying that I'm letting the black students do whatever they want. So I had to have a good week. It must be doing, I must be doing it right. (laughs) (laughs) It, It was, it was stressful at times, but really, seriously, having Ray there was such an asset, and I always could speak comfortably with Ray, and we could kind of talk things over and decide the best path forward. We were a few minutes ago, we were talking about some of the the outstanding students, and I'm sure there were many, many outstanding students over the years. But I mean, Barb, you were there for many years, so I'm sure there are so many students who stand out. But it does sound like you and Ray together really made it possible for some of these exceptional students to soar. Do you feel like that's your legacy? I don't think I really have a legacy. You know, I've been retired a long time. (laughs) I think you both have a legacy. (laughs) I just know that in my mind, I knew what was important, and I did my best to get us there. That's all I can really say about it. A lot of the students over the years, when I would let them know that the only reason I was able to do this is because Ms. Corson had my back, and they did. we didn't know that. We, well, a lot of stuff you would, wouldn't know. Is that, and there are days when I would think, like, boy, I wonder if I would be able to go to work tomorrow. And I just picture myself with a sign saying, hungry will teach for food. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think, now I don't know, Ray can correct me on this, but, you know, Nicole was a good writer even in high school. Mm-hmm. And I think at the same time that she was instrumental in the underground newspaper, I'm pretty sure, not 100%, but wasn't she also writing for The Spectator, Ray? Yeah, I'm pretty sure she was. Remember when I had to come to you to for you to go to the um, newspaper faculty member to put her on the newspaper because it was, she was one class or something that she hadn't had that they felt was necessary and finally, you just had to kind of let them know she's going to be on the newspaper. And that's what got her in. And then after, after you did that, then I had to come back to you and say, Barb, she don't want to be in there by herself. She's not like the Little Rock Nine. And, you, and I could tell you were like, oh, my God, now i got to go back down there and tell the director to put in another student. But that was how she got into newspaper writing, being spectator, and 
Um, sorry, I didn't see him color me black. But I think you were running that newspaper off. <laughs> it was pretty sure you were, Ray. <laughs> they were they were doing it in the business office. I may have helped them with a ream of paper you may here. Have. And there. <laughs> or I may have visited with Judy while she was in charge of the business office and they were in there running the paper, but <laughs> I'm not one hundred percent sure. <laughs> But it sounds like you guys were an incredible team. Oh. We had fun, in spite <laughs> of everything else going on around us. And you made a difference. And I, I do give Barb credit for having my back, because it, it, there were some times when I was kind of out there, but she, she found ways to watch my back and keep me employed. I probably ought to send her a check. <laughs> Well, you were watching mine too, Ray. Don't don't ever skip over that. Well, Barb, thank you so much for stopping by. <laughs> and thank you for all of your work. We got to stand with our educators. You're most welcome. Barbara Corson was a trailblazing educator. She was the principal at Waterloo West High School when Ray Dial was a teacher there back in the 80s and 90s. I'm talking with Reverend Ray Dial. He is a retired educator and current pastor at Bethel AME Church in Iowa City. And Ray, you and I have something in common. You hosted a radio show for a while. Tell me about that. Did a radio show called Talk Black to Me. It was supposed to be six weeks just to kind of share with the community some of the black history I was teaching their sons and daughters in school because it became clear to me that students are learning things that their parents, because I tell people all the time, just because you're black doesn't mean you know black history. You know your history, your experience. But So I was sharing it on the radio station there, KBBG, the um, director of the station. Yeah, we can give it a try. And it ended up being... I was on first and third Tuesdays for six years. Oh, my. And the show was called Talk Black to Me. And at the end of the show, I would always close with, you stay black till we get back. <laughs> and it was it was so much fun because the first couple of episodes, I'm like, nobody's listening to the show. And on my way out one evening, uh, the director of the station, he was up in his office and said, Jimmy, nobody's listening to this show. Maybe it's not going to work. He said, oh, people are listening. That's why they're not calling in. They're too busy listening and learning. So I stopped to grab a bite to eat on the way home, and I walk into this fast food place, and I hear these people start going, doo-doop, 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 doo-doop. and that was my theme song. <laughs> and, and people said, yeah, we listen. They were telling me, you know, gather in different places and listen to it together, and it, so, it was fun. You are such a humble guy, but this just gives me goosebumps to think about how powerful that was for people to hear you sharing this history, history that they had never heard before that reflected their heritage. I mean, that is so big. <laughs> the fun thing about it, too, is that you have a chance to help some people also take some chances and some risk and ask some questions because I would give the students assignments to take home and then I would say some of those same things. On like One of the things I always told students to interview the oldest living member of your family. And many of the black families in Waterloo came from Mississippi. And these students would come back telling you about 
the things that their ancestors did in Mississippi. And they were part of this march or that march, and that's part of how they ended up in Waterloo. When you take this kind of statement, if you have this job and they see you in this march, you don't have that job anymore and those kinds of things. And even uh, challenging some of the pastors in town to preach from a, a liberation theology and we dabbled in politics with, um, you know, how should you vote? Well, first, you ought to vote. And who should you vote for? I worked on the Jackson for President campaign. But it was it was fun. I never thought it was, like, earth-shattering. It was just an opportunity to be on the radio and share with some people some things from a black perspective because there, that perspective didn't exist on regular television and on o- other radio stations. Wow. You made such a difference as an educator, but you felt called to the ministry. Tell me, tell me what, why it felt important to you to leave education. My, uh, you know, mentioned my great great grandfather started the church, and so so that's kind of in our family tree. And I always knew I was called into the ministry. And when you talk to people who are in the ministry, we always talk about, you know, we always knew we just didn't always want to do it. And sometimes, you know, you don't want to go into the ministry because you got to be supposed to be nicer and treat people right. And you kind of have to do a, a change in how you do some things, or at least you have to be kinder and gentler. And I'm still working on being kinder and gentler. Do you feel like you are now doing the work that God designed you to do? Mm-hmm. There are sometimes on Sunday at the end of the sermon, you're wondering, like, hmm, am I doing the right thing? But I tie a lot of church and school together because it's all about teaching. And so you sh- I think you should always wonder about, are you really doing what you're supposed to the way it's a constant challenge to be better at what you do? And now at, at my age, I look back to, you know, it's less about the energy and more about the knowledge. You get to use more wisdom <laughs> now, even though um, I tell people on Sunday I'm the pastor and on Monday I'm the head custodian. <laughs> <laughs> this is Black History Month, and there are so many more resources available now than, than when you were teaching. But for people who are listening now, do you have any advice on how, how you wish people would mark Black History Month and, and what, how they can seek a deeper understanding of our history. Always encourage people to remember to never expect from others what you're not willing to do. So if you're not willing, as a black person in America, to delve deeper into your history with your reading and thinking and listening, because even um, there are TV, radio, there's so many opportunities to gather more information. Even when books are banned, they may be banned at school, but it's not banned at the library and not banned at the bookstore. Get the book, read the book. So if you won't, then how can you expect white people to do it? So it's, it's important for the black community to you know, take the leadership role, read, share, think, ask questions, get involved, and encourage white people to do the same thing, but also tell everybody we must also remember that oppression isn't limited to skin color. As a, a black person, I recognize the role of Buffalo soldiers and the impact on First Nation people. And if I cannot appreciate 
what they went through. How can I expect them to appreciate what I go through? So never expect from others what you're not willing to do. Yeah. So, you know, right now you're talking to a largely white audience. What do you want white people to do this month? In, you know, with the reading and then ask questions. And and if people read and, and ask questions, but just have the courage to say, I don't know and I want to know. Um, and students get, should be doing that. Teachers should be doing that. Preachers should be doing that. Politicians should be doing that. And when you do those kinds of things, you develop a more of a, a feeling and compassion for other human beings And when you have that kind of compassion, things always get better when you care. Reverend Ray Dial, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. Reverend Ray Dial is a retired educator now and current pastor at Bethel AME Church in Iowa City. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Caitlin Troutman, Danny Gere, and Samantha McIntosh. I'm Charity Neppy. This is Talk of Iowa.